0: what is up welcome back to big fat five a podcast financially supported by big fat snare drum my name is ben hilzinger and this week's guest is butch vig he needs no introduction but here we go He's one of the most successful producers in rock history, having produced a large handful of critically and commercially acclaimed albums, such as Nirvana's Nevermind, both Gish and Siamese Dream from Smashing Pumpkins, Sonic Youth's Dirty, Soul Asylum's Let Your Big Light Shine, Foo Fighters' Wasting Light, Jimmy World's Chase This Light, and the two latest Silver Sun pickup records, Widows Weeds and Physical Thrills. In addition to producing, Butch is one hell of a drummer having played with Spooner, Firetown, Five Billion, and Diamonds, and of course, Garbage. Big shout out to my new family in Silver Sun Pickups, namely Brian, for setting this up. It was an honor to say the least, and I was of course very nervous, but I only interrupted him just a little bit. Overall, I think I kept my cool, although if Butch listens to this, cat's out of the bag. But anyways, this was a big one for me, and I love how it turned out. Butch is a sweetheart of a man, and it made me love him and his career even more. So I hope you enjoy the five records that helped shape Butch Vig into the producer and drummer he is today. Oh, and the song you're about to hear is Will You Remember Me by Spooner from their 1982 release, Every Corner Dance. And that's Butch Vig on drums. I love this song. Cheers.
1: to stay She's a wild one She's a wild
0: I'm sure I'm not alone in this, but a lot of times I have no idea what to practice. And so um, since I'm sitting with someone who is partly known for recording and working with some of the best drummers in the world, what specifically do you look for in a drummer? And what would secretly you wish all drummers that you work with in the future practice on in general?
2: I think the most important thing in a drummer is to have some character in terms of how they play. The feel that they bring to the band. I'm not always interested in someone who can play really fancy drum fills or crazy patterns. Uh, I mean, I appreciate those, but from a production standpoint, I like it when the drummer knows how to fit into a song, into the context of the song. And that could be a busy drum part. It could be, have all sorts of polyrhythms and crazy drum fills that actually can become a hook. Mm -hmm. But the most important thing is that they just groove, and whatever that groove is, is that it fits in with the music. And I think part of that is I'm a drummer, so that is part of my production sensibility. I've always approached it from a very early age like that, and uh, that's the most important thing to me. It doesn't matter if you can play crazy jazz drums, if you can play wild rock drums like Keith Moon, or if you play like Mm. Ringo or Mick Fleetwood, who's one of my favorite drummers. I mean just put down the most simple, basic groove as long as it's kick ass.
0: Uh-huh. When when Butch Vig sits down to practice, what do you what do you do?
2: <laughs> I don't <laughs> practice enough. Yeah, well neither of us do. <laughs> what usually happens is I go on tour and we're garbage is garbage is going on tour in June and we're gonna start rehearsing probably the second or third week of May. So I'll probably start practicing next week or so. So I've got a good month under my skin to just get my muscle memory back. But usually when I finish a tour, I go cold turkey. I don't play drums for months. Yeah, And uh, on my list of things that I do, a producer, an engineer, a songwriter, a drummer, drummer is at the bottom of the totem pole. I just never really had the wherewithal to really practice a lot and to get really fancy, you know, so... Mm -hmm. But I do know that it takes uh, some practice and muscle memory to go out and put on a, a hour-and-a-half or two-hour show every night and, and, yeah. and play really tight. So, um, like I said, I'll probably start rehearsing next week because uh, we start rehearsals in early May. And... Uh... I'm assuming
0: you've seen the Nelson Drum Shop, the Pro Drum Hollywood, like grooves of the day, where just they just film drummers. So if you were to walk into Pro Drum, which I'm sure you have been in many times, and they just say, hey, Butch, here's some, here's some sticks. We're gonna film you for 30 seconds. And you say yes, <laughs> what would you play? Would you just play a garbage song? Because you're like, I'd take advantage of this practice time.
2: Well, the garbage song would probably be pretty straight ahead, groove-wise. I might do something like ba boom ba boom ba boom ba 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 boom 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 Thank you. There you go. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And people would be liking it and commenting yeah, it, I just, guarantee. Yeah, just play a really crazy ass fill yeah, for yeah. Uh, about ten seconds and then call it a day. That's a good answer. Um, this is the first time I've asked this
0: question, but do you have any superstitions when it comes to recording?
2: Not really, although I have a Shirt I bought years ago that I sometimes wear on the first day of a session in the studio with a band. Mm. It's like a black sweatshirt v neck and it's like 25 or 30 years old. Wow. It hasn't tattered out yet. I don't know why. I also take it with me on the first day of a garbage tour. I always wear it. Shirley season goes, Oh, you got your shirt on. It's just yeah. for good luck. And I don't even, I'm not even a nervous person with uh, luck like that. Um, but that is something that I do. I just realized that I also used to have a Packer hat that I would wear the first day of tracking, but I I have so many Packer hats now. I can't keep track of which one was the good luck one.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Um, So Gary Klebe, was he the first producer you worked with that really helped shape you into a professional
2: drummer and the way you approach like your whole viewpoint on recording? Gary Klebe was a total mentor to me. I mean, he was the first person who told me, don't put all your eggs in one basket. Don't just be a drummer. Mm -hmm. He produced the first EP that Spooner recorded and the first, well, Spooner was the first band I was in in college. And that's where I met Duke from Garbage. And that's also where I met Steve. Steve was a roadie for us in Spooner. And the first couple of recordings that we did, Gary Klebe was the producer and we met him through Duke's cousin who knew the band and they had sent us their first release black vinyl shoes, which is an incredibly cool power pop sought after under the radar album that they put out on their own. And it was recorded on the four track in their living room with headphones. And I think they got signed to Bomb records, which is like a power pop label out here in LA. And then they got a big deal with Electra and, uh, Gary picked up a lot in the studio from those, and they, they were really smart studio guys, and he really taught me a lot. He taught me about engineering, how you mic, why you mic a certain way, how to tune drums, how to get a snare drum sound a certain way. He really gave me a lot of insight into mixing and layering, especially with vocals, because if you know the band Shoes, they, they recorded amazing vocal harmonies, and they, they were double and triple track all their parts, and they just sounded crazy good. But as I said, he really... Uh, pushed me a lot and encouraged me to not just be a drummer but to become an engineer and a producer and i really took that to heart
1: mm-hmm.
0: well i if people listening haven't listened to spooner it you are a fully formed pro drummer the arrangements and the parts uh they're so fun to drum along to i am a recent but very big fan of spooner so uh good job
2: on that <laughs> it's funny you you bring Spooner up, uh, Duke and I were recording some new garbage tracks last week, and somebody who we know, a friend of ours from Madison, sent us this live version of a Spooner song that we, you know, did from a gig in like 1987 or something, a long time ago, and and we went on to Spotify, and we listened to, well, the reason we went on to Spotify is because the song was so fast, and we used to play everything really fast, so Duke and I opened up Spotify and went to Spooner and listened to some of our recordings and my god they were fast yeah we were we were young and had a lot of adrenaline back then yeah there was no, there were really no drugs involved you know we would drink some beer before a show but a lot of people sure. think oh it's you're smart. taking speed or whatever we, that we never did that um i think it was just raw adrenaline but man those songs are fast
0: yeah but um all right so let's uh let's just hop into your five mm-hmm. and so i mean you talk and we have been talking about producing but you are an incredible drummer and so i do want to talk about what made you into the drummer you are today. So and I'm sure there's there's different ways you attack this. And so before we walk into this, what was your plan of attack? What was your mindset going into these five? I, I know I did prompt you and kind of explain what I wanted, but how did you do this?
2: I think the reason I picked these five albums and these five drummers in particular were they were all powerful albums for me as a fan and also as a young engineer producer like i listened to them not just from a drumming standpoint but how the drums worked within the songwriting and the arrangements of the songs sure. the sound of them the performances and um i'm a big fan of the bands and all of the five albums that i picked uh, there's nothing that's that current i guess um but th- as i said i really listened to all these albums quite a bit in my youth and uh as i was an aspiring drummer and also an aspiring producer hmm hey y'all i wanted to <laughs> i can't say
0: i wanted to talk to you about a drum i've recently received from preston at vessel drum co it's an ocean patina 14 by five and a half snare drum and it's incredible it's got a 1.5 millimeter shell brass shell with 10 lugs, chrome over brass, triple flange hoops, a trick uh, three position strainer, 42 strand wires. It's lovely, it's loud, and it cuts and records as beautiful as a piece of butter cake. And, And Preston actually, this is why it's called the ocean patina, is he covers the shell with seaweed and then drops it in the ocean for a certain period of time. And then it patinas with all these crazy cool designs. And if you all remember, Preston was actually one of the first guests on the podcast. When I first started out, I didn't really know what the Big Fat Five format was gonna be or if it was gonna be even Big Fat Five at all. But I went to his garage, his way his, you know where he makes all of his drums. It was really cool. He walked me through. The episode is essentially from start to finish what happens with a drum. and it was it was a really fun episode. It's now archived at bigfatcentrum.com just because it doesn't fit the format of Big Fat Five. I want you to get back to the show, but go check it out. This drum is beautiful, and he actually let me use it on an Eve 6 tour, and I didn't keep it, and I regretted it ever since then just because I was trying to pinch pennies at the time, and I just kept thinking about it, and so the opportunity to get it again was presented, and it is one of my favorite drums. So the Ocean Patinaed 14 by 55 snare drum. Check it out. Reach out to me. Go to Vessel Drum Co., the Instagram's just at Vessel Drum Co and check it out. It's amazing. It's beautiful. Sounds great. Bye. All right. Well, album one, and are these in any particular order on how they were introduced to you?
2: <clears throat> I think as I wrote them, they're sort of chronological, right? Earliest to latest, uh, C- kind of.
0: 71, 74, 6, 77. Yeah. Good job. A plus. All right. <laughs> so the album, the uh, number one is Who's Next? Release year is 1971. The artist is The Who, Song Choice is behind Blue Eyes, and, of course, Keith Moon is the drummer. So, yeah, why did uh, this one specifically make the list?
2: Well, I'm a huge fan of The Who. When you look out at a little coffee station in my studio, there's some pictures of The Who on the wall, and one of the photos is from Roger Daltrey playing at the Dane County Coliseum in Madison, Wisconsin, mm. and I was at that show standing right about where that photographer took that photo. Oh, wow. I grew up playing piano, because my mom was a music teacher, and in fifth or sixth grade, I saw the Who on the Smothers Brothers show, Mm. and Keith Moon just blew me away, and I begged, begged, begged my parents to get me a drum kit, and my mom made me promise if they got me a drum kit that I would keep up my piano lessons and I broke that promise. <laughs> Within a year, I was just playing drums all the time, and I sure. sadly dropped the piano, and I wish I hadn't, because I still play piano badly. Yeah, all, I think all drummers do wish we would have kept with that. I wanted to be Keith Moon so bad, and as soon as my parents got me a drum kit, I realized I can't play like Keith Moon, <laughs> but I can. could play like Ringo. And like charlie watts mm-hmm. and so those are the records that i listened to early on and my mom had those albums she was a, a big music fan and she was the one who turned me on to the beatles and and the rolling stones and wanted to be keith moon but I, I like i said i just realized you know what i'll stick to the groove and uh that's kind of been my mo for you know over 30 years now i guess but there's something about that record who's next the songwriting is extraordinary uh, the band is at the peak of their powers I, I like the way that Pete Townsend introduced uh, the Moog and ARP synthesizers in it you know that run through a lot of the record mm-hmm. but Keith Moon's drumming is fantastic and in Behind Blue Eyes you have to wait and wait and wait while Daltrey sings or Townsend sings and they just work 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 and you, you wait and wait and wait and then you come on and it just explodes. His drumming just is on fire. And uh, it's one of the greatest drum performances I've ever heard.
1: No one knows what it's like To be the bad man To be the sad man Behind blue eyes No one knows what it's like To be hated to be faded to telling only
2: lies it's funny when i saw that concert dreams, at the dane county coliseum
1: uh-huh. moon
2: did not look good mm. and when they started this song he got off the drum kit i saw a couple roadies. i was really close so i could see a couple roadies dragged him off uh. to the side of the stage and i'm going are they going to bring him back bring him back At about a minute into the song, another roadie brought out this giant fan and put it right by his drum monitor. Yeah. And then a split second before the drums come in on the song, Moon got pushed back up on the kit, and he played out of his mind on fire. And he'd been dragging the whole show, so I think they must have shot him up with some speed or something. Sure, yeah. You know, they had a rock dock backstage. Yeah. And sadly, that was... You know, I think less than a year before he died, so he was kind of uh, in rough shape, but man, did he explode on the song when he, when he finished playing it.
1: Yeah.
2: If you've ever heard the demo of this, Mm-mm. search it out. It's Pete Townsend just doing it on a four-track at home. Oh, wow. It's fully formed. It's just him and acoustic guitar. He does all the singing and plays all the parts. And uh, it's I have great. Hours only
1: lonely. My love is vengeance that's never free. Mm-hmm.
2: Super clean. Yeah, uh, he starts with those boom boom boom, 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 like little hooks right off the start. Before
1: I use it and lose my cool When I smile, tell me some bad news Before I laugh and act like a fool
2: I mean, he's basically playing a fill every bar. <laughs> yeah. Swallow
1: anything evil Put your finger down my throat And if I
2: shake it, leave Townsend is just playing chords right here. There's some little riffs that drop in and out. Another one of my fave tracks is Pinball Wizard, which has a really fast strummy guitar panned in one speaker. And then there's another guitar that comes in and and there's a left speaker. And again, Moon's drumming. He just plays drum fills the whole song. Yeah, so like I said, I'm a huge Who fan. And... uh, I've always loved Pete Townsend's songwriting in general. I love pretty much all our albums Uh, and Quadrafinha, also a fantastic record. Mm -hmm. But I think it was the first time I heard Pinball Wizard on the radio that I really fell in love with them.
0: Is that from this record?
2: No, that's early, that's an early single. Um, I was probably in junior high school when I heard Pinball Wizard, but it's also an amazing track because uh, the production is totally cool. And uh, Moon's is fantastic in it.
0: Well, let's just hear a little bit of that and then we can go on to number two.
2: This is something Townsend does all the time, too, suspended chords. So, do, doo-doo-doo-doo, do, 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 do. All these different, goes up a step, half step, then back down. Now it goes into the main chord progression. Yeah, I hear this.
0: All right, so not to move on from Keith, but just for time's sake, let's go to number two. Mm -hmm. The album's Country Life. The release here is 1974. The artist is Roxy Music. The song is Out of the Blue and Paul Thompson is the drummer. So take
2: it away. Well, when I first discovered Roxy Music, I had moved to Madison and I was going to school at UW. And I became fascinated with bands like T-Rex mm. and the New York Dolls and David Bowie and Slade. And that's how I discovered Roxy Music and fell madly in love with them. I became the president of the Roxy Music fan club in Madison. <laughs> really? I was the self-appointed president. Oh, I see, I see, I see. There were only seven other members, but uh, <laughs> I was the president. And uh, I was a massive fan of the band, and I love all of their records. They're all quite different. If you know Roxy at all, their first two records had Brian Eno. Mm, They're yep. very, almost sort of art punk, with a lot of crazy synth that uh, Eno would do, like sort of freestyle noise synth. Um, an incredible band, Phil Manzanero and guitar, and Andy McKay on woodwinds, mostly saxophone. And Brian Ferry just had this incredibly cool chic persona and sang very strange you know with a real a lot of melodrama i guess that's Mm -hmm. how i would call his singing on those early records he became much more of a proper singer and crooner as the band developed and and country life is really sort of the first fully formed record where they are really hitting their songwriting and production at the same time i mean it's a, a an amazing sounding record the songwriting is really strong and very eclectic and diverse Mm -hmm. And through it all, Paul Thompson is just such a solid drummer. One thing that he does is play these really cool grooves, but also does a lot of pushing in the band. A lot of his beats sort of go to a double time with a snare on the one like, Mm. and probably more than half of the songs that they recorded. And he really has a propulsive feel and also a very simple feel. In fact, some of the fills and grooves like the kick snare patterns that he had in roxy songs i incorporated some of those into some of the early spooner songs Mm -hmm. and i felt like if there was a drummer out there that i was listening to and buying records from that i had a kinship with with him as a drummer and uh i've always loved roxy for their songs and the production but also for paul thompson's drumming did you ever get to
0: interact with him
2: collaborate with him at all i was going to go see them at the forum a couple months ago and i got covid a Ugh, couple of days before of and uh, it really pissed me off because my garbage bandmates went and said the show was fantastic said the whole band was great and they met him backstage you know at the forum club and <laughs> hung out with <laughs> him like for stop a while. talking guys i get i know it. <laughs> and i'm sitting here coughing downstairs my you know i was isolated down here yeah in, in the guest bedroom um, for about 10 days anyway yeah I, lo- I love roxy music
0: right on all right well let's let's listen to out of the blue
2: I remember hearing this on WIBA-FM Rock Radio in Madison, Wisconsin one morning. Here's a new song by Roxy Music from their forthcoming album. This is called Out of the Blue, and it fades in. It was a really cool... boom Really cool groove that Paul's playing. Yeah. That's Andy McKay on oboe in the background playing that little riff on the drum fill
1: yeah now they so far away now i know there's a few
2: Yeah, that's amazing a cool groove. It's yeah. an amazing groove.
1: You so sad, I, see, your
2: so I always love Brian Ferry's lyrics. There's always this sort of bittersweet affair going on, like lost love and uh, decadence sort of mixed into his lyrics and singing.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: Nice little breakdown. Here comes the chorus. Now it's half time. Goes back to the intro great listening to headphones so you can hear the flange they've got a, they're mixing the flange in and out of the mix sounds like the whole mix
0: yeah Roxy music is a band that I I'm well aware of I just haven't gone down the rabbit hole of really getting into them and it's a, it's a travesty because whenever I hear their songs it's really cool
2: Well, the album after The Siren had a pretty big single here in the U.S., Love is the Drug, which you probably know. That was, I think, their biggest U.S. single. Mm -hmm. And then they sort of made a bit of a stylistic change, and they recorded Avalon, which is one of the most beautiful-sounding albums. It doesn't sound anything like their first two albums, but again, great songwriting, uh, amazing musicianship on the record. They sort of became more sophisticated-sounding. Like, I would hear Avalon being played in, like, nightclubs, Mm. You know, you go into a jazz club or, or a dinner club or something, or a hotel bar, where they're serving fancy cocktails or whatever. you'd hear that in the background playing. But um, they probably wouldn't play the first two Roxy albums in the same <laughs> scenario. But a great band. If you, if you don't know Roxy music, go out and uh, search them out. They're absolutely incredible.
0: All right, well, a band that definitely will not be played at a hotel is uh, the Ramones. So the album is Ramones, release years 1976. The artist is, of course, the Ramones. And uh, song choices Beat on the Brat. And Tommy Ramone is behind the skin. So take it away.
2: I love the Ramones. I think that's the first proper punk record of all time. And mm-hmm. they were so hugely influential. They did a short UK run on their first tour. And every venue they played, all these punk bands in the UK saw them. And a week later, they, they were trying to form a punk band. Yep. And there's something so stripped down and elemental about this first record it is dead simple mm-hmm. and quite funny if you listen to it i think the guitar is pan in the right speaker and the drums and bass are pan hard left in the left speaker and then joey's vocals are up the center and there's very few lead guitar overdubs it's mm-hmm. just so primal and you can't get simpler on the drums i mean it's yeah. just like the most basic four four drumming but at, at a pretty quick tempo you know you can tell they didn't use any clicks, but they must have rehearsed a lot because they're pretty tight. Absolutely. And another funny thing is, uh they used to count off all the songs: one, two, three, four, and they had nothing to do with the tempo. It'd be like one, two, three, four. Do 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 <laughs> do. One, two, three, four. Do 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 do. It's funny. Sure. Uh, it, but that was their thing. I think I think the bass player would yell out one, two, three, four. I saw him live like a half dozen times on their first two albums because I loved them so much. We used to play. The Ramones, the apartment I lived at, or the house I lived at with three other guys, it was kind of an animal house mm. vibe going on in college. As, as, eh, those were the days. Mm-hmm. But about once a month, we would have friends over and, and just crank the Ramones. We had these really big, shitty-sounding speakers, but they were fucking loud. <laughs> yeah. And we'd have about 20 or 30 friends over headbanging <laughs> in the living room to the Ramones, and it was so fun. Well, here we go. <laughs> I mean, that sounds pretty damn tight. Yeah, it does. The drums are so dead. There must have been a pound of gaffer's tape on that snare drum. <laughs> no, there was a big fat snare drum on there 40 years ago. <laughs> there should have been a big fat snare head on there. There is no, like, listen. there's no
0: ring at all. And those cymbals, too. Psh, gone. Yeah. They must have had, like like paper towels or something taped to them or or they were all broken that could have also been the uh the secret sauce
2: it almost sounds like they had noise gates on them like yeah and they because they go and they cut out Yes, yeah, a very aggressive stop Money. Yeah, the first time I saw the Ramones, they played at a funky club in Madison called El Tejon, and they came out and played their record, and we're done in like 25 minutes. That was it. They didn't have any other songs. <laughs> yes, they, they played, and then they go, thank you, and they just left the stage. That was it. There was no encore or anything. People go, more and more, and <laughs> someone got up, I think maybe their road manager, and said, that's all the songs they have. Thank you for <laughs> we coming. We
0: literally can't play more, yeah. So it seems like Madison, you guys got surprisingly a lot of amount of bands to come to that seemingly smaller town. you think they'd go to Chicago, Milwaukee, and then move on.
2: Madison was one of those cities that a lot of bands came through, obviously a secondary market compared to Chicago and Milwaukee, but mm-hmm. a lot of times bands were looking for a filler day, so they'd play there like on a Monday night or a Tuesday night, you know, and they'd play the bigger cities on the weekend. There was a really super vibrant club scene there. There was a club called El Tejo and a club called Headliners, a club called Bunkies, an amazing club on State Street called Merlin's, which was open from like 1980 to 85, maybe. Okay. And I swear to God, every British band that happened came through there. Not just British bands, but but bands from the this scene in New York, the, the sort of the Ramones, the you know new wave, no wave scene. Um, television, Talking Heads. I heard REM, R.E.M. play there for six people, you know, on their, when their first record came out. We saw Iggy Pop, The Cult, u two played there on their first tour, mm-hmm. you know, in a club with like three hundred people. And um, at the time, I guess we just took it for granted. But I was there pretty much every night, being yeah. A music fan, I, I went out if there was a band playing, I went out every single night, and uh, they were they were great times, man, because. Like I said, there were so many cool bands coming through from both the U.S. and Britain that um, it was just a wealth of music that we got to hear.
0: So were Mondays and Tuesdays at Smart Studios, was that a big day too? A lot of bands would not play a show, but like on the way they'd be like, well, let's cut a single or something on the way to Minneapolis? Or
2: Yeah, that happened. Not a lot, but occasionally a band would call us and say, hey, we're going to be in town, we're playing at Merlin, so we're playing Headline, so we need to record something. Can we get in the studio for a day? We're like... If the studio was open, we would say, yeah. And sometimes yeah. I'd, if there was a local band in there, I'd, I'd shift them around. If, if mm. say, some band wanted to come in, I'd say, hey, can you guys come in on Saturday because we need to get this band in today? And they'd be sure. And that was fun when that happened because you, you sort of felt like, oh, we've only got X amount, we only got like four hours to cut something because then they got to go to sound check. So you yeah. kind of put a torch under your butt, you know, that you had to make sure everything happened really quickly. But they were fun, man.
0: Which, yeah, deadlines are very inspiring deadlines as are well. Deadlines were great. <laughs> yeah. All right, so number number four. Speaking of television, "Marquee Moon" is the album. The release year is 1977. The artist is, of course, Television. Song choice is "See No Evil" and
2: Billy Fika, Fica? Yeah, I th- Billy Fika I don't. I Fica. guess that's how you say his name, Billy. Well, Tom Verlaine, rest in peace. He just passed away uh, like a month or so ago. I think a lot of people look at "Marquee Moon" as one of the greatest guitar records ever. Wow. It's just incredibly inventive guitar playing that didn't sound anything at all that people were used to. It didn't sound like an Eric Clapton or Jeff Beck record or Mm -hmm. anything like a classic rock record. Verlaine's playing and his songwriting came out of the punk art scene in New York. And the record is just incredible sounding. But I think what makes the record special is the rhythm section also just has this really unusual feel i think fred smith was the bass player and he, he sort of played these kind of minimal bass lines with a lot of holes in them mm. and billy ficka played like a jazz drummer really tense little accents on the hat and snare that were not straight ahead 4-4 four, four, little grace notes and things that were off time and it caused this incredible tension I don't know if you'll hear, uh, what's the track I picked? See No Evil? See No Evil, Evil. yeah, opened, uh, the album opener. I mean, the drumming is great. And the guitar riff, is, sounds like electricity when I hear it. But if you if you really are interested, you should seek out and listen to the whole record because it's incredible guitar playing, but also incredible drumming. And mm-hmm. um, it also sounds like it's recorded in your living room, like you're sitting in a chair and they're setting up in a semicircle around you and playing. It's really dry and obviously not recording in a very big studio because... Uh, There's an intimacy to it, but uh, it's pretty incredible sounding. And uh, I saw them live a couple of times and they were great. There's also a track you should seek out if you really want to hear a uh, great tense drum part. It's the first single I ever heard that they released called... uh, My little Johnny... He's so... Billy Ficka switches from like 16 straight to dotted notes on the hat, like in in each bar, back and forth. Does a lot of sort of dubby rim shots and stuff. Minimal guitar and bass line, but an incredibly tense, nervous drum track that really makes the song work. Anyway, this is See No Evil, and it is Electricity. Listen to this guitar riff here. Guitar of sounds like electricity. Yeah. But I love what Billy does in the drums because he plays a lot of sort of syncopated parts. He's obviously playing the toms. You can hear their ride simulators there. One of these songs also had a very hypnotic feel. You just sort of get this repetitive drone going with this riff, and this is one of those songs. Seek out little Johnny Jewels for some of the tensest drumming you'll ever hear. <laughs> okay. <laughs> all right. So, number five,
0: London Calling. The release year is 1979. The artist is Clash. Uh, song choice is Train in Vain. And the drummer is uh, Topper Heaton. Take it away.
2: Well, London Calling is probably in my top 10 albums of all time. I love it to death. Mm. I saw the Clash play a bunch of times back in the day. And this record to me is a pinnacle of sort of new wave punk because stylistically they really stretch themselves there's reggae and dub and jazz and rockabilly and folk music and all these sort of styles that are all mixed together and yet it sounds like the clash just the way they play the production and both Mick Jones and Joe Strummer's vocals And holding it all together is Topper Heedon, who's an incredible drummer, Mm -hmm. just an incredible drummer, especially since he plays all these different styles of music. And I guess this is still considered like an alt rock or or more of a coming from punk rock, but the drumming on the whole record is just fantastic. Mm -hmm. And uh, nobody ever talks about that. I mean, they talk about how great Mick Jones and Joe Strummer songs were and how important the band was at the time The Clash were you know, kind of one of the big bands in the, it, that was really still counterculture to a lot of the classic rock bands coming out of the 70s. I think this came out in 1979, right? Yep, so It was right yep. before the 80s. You know, I remember seeing posters, The Clash, the only band that matters. And that's how I felt. I mean, I, I was just <laughs> madly in love with them. And I think their record still holds up and st- still sounds great today. It does. And, uh, I, I had a hard time picking a song. I mean, Guns of Brixton, Lost in the Supermarket spanish bombs there's just so many great tracks on the record if you haven't heard it you have you have to go and and listen to it listen to the whole record all the way through from start to finish because there's fantastic songs on it and as i remember i think the track i picked is train in vain yep okay so i love the groove on this so much that on the garbage song stupid girl we sampled the intro topper Heedon's drums into a One bar drum loop, and then we wrote the song on top of that drum loop. That's awesome. And if you hear Stupa Girl, it's just so obvious how great that drum part sounds. And it was so much fun to record to. When we finished the album, our manager and the label said, hmm, we think you should re-record that drum part, because we're going to have a hard time (laughs) getting clearance on it. Sure. So i spent a day in the studio trying to recreate the sound and the feel that topper had on that yeah and it was a bust you know i i did a new drum part mixed it listened to it it didn't have the same vibe at all and part of it was demoitis or you know just because that's how we recorded the song so i said why don't you call up the clash and just work out a deal so we gave him a little bit of the publishing because that was on the song and I, we were totally happy to do that yeah because we would not have written that song unless we sampled the clash and so I'm sort of proud in a way that uh, they get a little bit of a royalty check every time Stupid Girl is played. A little tick, 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 tick thing on tick hat, which gives it some swing. Yeah, cool.
0: tick 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 a tick
2: tick tick Yeah, I don't really hear many crashes in this yeah not necessary Saw the clash play at the Aragon Ballroom in Chicago. And I think Public Enemy opened the show. It was absolutely insane, though, when they <laughs> took the stage and they started with London calling. De, 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 yeah. de. And the whole there were like four, five thousand kids there. People went mental. Yeah. The whole building was going like this. Oh, it was geez. so good, so powerful. Do you ever
0: or do you have the ability to turn off your producer brain? Are there any records that you're just like? I'm turning it off. I just love this record. Kind of hard for me to do because <laughs> when I
2: hear a song, I'm constantly hearing all the parts and the elements and the mix. Yep. If it's wet or dry, the kind of tones and the guitar, the arrangement, you know, the back vocals and the vocals, the the melody, the structure. My, I'm con- even a song I've heard hundreds of times. I'll hear it in the car or something or at a party with fresh ears. I'll hear something that I didn't pick up on before. It's a blessing and a curse. Yes,
0: absolutely. I do want to talk about the reason that I'm here, which is I worked with Silver Sun. People on the podcast know I talked about this, but you also have uh, the Silver Sun vig-ups. That you've uh, worked with them a little bit. Can you talk about that? And, uh, and then, the, of course, the song David Lynch Has a Painting of Fly's Eyes.
2: When we finished recording the latest Silver Sun album, Physical Thrills, I was telling some stories to the band, and, and one of the stories was some of the times I met David Lynch, one of the times I met him was before we moved into the house we're in now. We were renting a house up in Outpost. Okay. And my wife went in to go to work. She was doing a at the time at DreamWorks. And I got up and was drinking some coffee at 10 a.m. I looked out the window and I saw this guy with curly hair walking through the yard, look, picking up pieces of grass and looking around. I go, fuck me, that's David Lynch. <laughs> so I opened up the window and went, David, it's Butch Vig." goes who was that I go butch vig and i had met david before because he used to have a home in madison and oh, him and okay. his wife at the time mary sweeney would go to madison for three or four weeks in the summer and, and we would see him he'd come by smart studios or we'd see him at the steakhouse downtown or hanging out so i had met him before and so that that morning he said butch come on over i pour you a cup of coffee and uh you can see my studio. And so I went over and he showed me his studio and he was working on this furniture that looked really cool and he had a lot of art there. He had a whole studio set up with a, a, a screening room where you could, you know, maybe 20 people could watch a cut of a film. Sure. Really, really cool house. And he had the, some paintings there and there was one that looked like a, a painting of a face and so when you got up closer, it's all these little flies eyes stuck into pins on the in the <laughs> painting. Anyway, I told some of these stories to... Brian and the band. He goes, you got to write a song about that. And as he was leaving the studio here, he started going, David Lynch is a painting made of fly's eyes. And I picked up a guitar and I started writing the riff right away. And uh, we decided to record the song and, and recorded the whole thing in about four or five hours. It's a rad song. I'll drop it in the show notes. Yeah, it, it. it's as you know, it's a, uh, it's you know, it's like me talking in the verses, which is basically a true story now my memory is all a little mixed together and it's kind of like a david lynch film it's a little little trippy and uh a little sort of fantastic in a way because my memory is all sort of run together these days but basically a true story and then uh it's so fun i mean Nikki uh does that great scream toward the end yeah and that we did that Nikki starts the song and. and Brian ends the song, and we did what David did in a lot of the Twin Peaks episodes, where he records dialogue, flips it around, and then has the actors listen to it backwards and speak it like that backwards. Then he flips their new vocal around so it sounds like it's a real vocal, but it had been recorded backwards. So it's just kind of weird. So we did a lot of that in the recording of David Lynch has a painting made of fly's eyes. And then when we shot the video for it, we put the song backwards and learn how to play it backwards which was really hard to do i'm <laughs> sure <laughs> almost impossible basically yeah. we would record four bars at a time and listen to it and try to figure out how do we possibly sing whatever yeah and because the sync was so off even though we were doing it backwards we decided to close caption it with uh, mostly well it's all except for the first line which is in english the whole rest of the song is in foreign language but it's closed caption it works very well just to distract that our (laughs) lip-syncing is absolutely terrible but it's because we're recording it backwards yeah so anyway it was really fun and uh Mm -hmm. we're i think we're gonna do another ssvu song next year for a record store day we have to start thinking about when we're gonna get in the studio to record that but it was so much fun to do any uh any previews of what that song is going to be about any stories No, Brian's trying to get me to write something about a real life story. And I did tell him a story about when I played with a band I produced in Minneapolis at uh, a record release party. When we were done, it was like a Wednesday night and, uh, packing up our gear. And then this roadie came up to me and said, Hey man, can you leave your drums set up? Prince wants to use them. I'm like, what? (laughs) And it turns out Prince wanted to come down and jam at first Avenue. Mm -hmm. And, um, I was like, sure, he can use my drums. <laughs> yeah. And so I was thinking, great, I'm going to get to watch Prince play. And then they said, I'm sorry, you got to go. It's a private party. <laughs> so I let him use my drums, but they kicked me out. And then I had to stand outside for like three hours. Oh, Well, okay. I had this private party at First Avenue for some of his friends and fans, and he played. And then we, I went downstairs to, if you know First Avenue downstairs, there's a smaller club called 7th Street, which is where I, I hung out with the band who I was working with at the time. Mm-hmm. And... um. So Prince used my drums, but I didn't get to see him. <laughs> and Brian thinks somehow there's a song in there. So we'll, we'll sure. see. We'll see. Okay. <laughs>
0: um, well, I will let you get to your, your busy day, I'm assuming. But I just wanted to say, you it's, it's an honor talking to you because, well, for many reasons. But songs you've worked on have been on, I can't even remember how many guests top fives. What you've done in your career has has done, as I'm sure I hope you know, has influenced so many people uh, firsthand, people talking excitedly about all these records you've been a part of. So uh, uh, it's an
2: honor. Cool, man. Well, thanks for saying that. I mean, I'm very lucky thinking about it because I've worked with some incredible drummers. Yeah. Uh, as anybody knows, that, that's such a core of music, uh, especially if it's rock. You've got to have a, a great foundation, a great groove, and you want attitude. and. Mm-hmm. And you want sometimes you want drums to have fills that are hooks. And, mm-hmm. and the drum fills can become hooks, you know. So oh, yeah. just ask Dave Grohl, listen to Nevermind. All the drum fills are hooks <laughs> on that record. Amen. But I'm really lucky that I have worked with some fantastic drummers because when you work with a great drummer, it makes my job easy. Yeah. <laughs> thank you, Butch. Yeah, thank you so much. This is fun. and
0: that's the show if you're listening on a platform that allows ratings and reviews do that it helps more people find the show so it'll get bigger and better and hopefully i'll have a chance to sell out one day but you'll be an og listener that can brag to all your friends anyways why don't you go and check us out at bigfatsnaredrum.com and follow us on all the socials just search for big fat snare drum and you will find us the show is edited in part using Isotope rx audio editor it's amazing so go check that out at isotope.com. And thanks again to Gunnar Olsen for the theme music. Bye.